Whether you're just starting to plan your career path, you're a hard worker seeking greater opportunity, an aspiring entrepreneur, or a business person at the top of your game, Radio 111 presents The Success Doctor, a roadmap to best practices to help you achieve your best professional life with Dr. Stone James. Here's Stone. Welcome back to The Success Doctor. This is Stone James, and we have the good fortune of having Dr. Michael Falco join us. Dr. Falco, are you there? I sure am. I appreciate you making the time. So last time we talked, we, we, we covered a lot of really important things. We talked about uh, ethics and the absolute importance of being completely ethical on your resume and your cover letter. We also talked about really being fastidious, uh, having a high attention to detail, a flawless, I think to use your word, level of detail to make sure that your resume and cover letter are perfect. There's no spelling mistakes, no grammatical mistakes. And you've taken the time to customize that cover letter to, to, to not only the position, but also to the company that you're applying for. I remember years ago, I had a, a scenario where I was applying to a, uh, a pharmaceutical company, uh, and I did a tremendous amount of research on the company. And during the course of the interview, I created an opportunity to bring out, to talk about some of the research that I did. And I can still remember there was a senior manager, an accomplished individual who had spent, uh, I'd probably say over a decade, maybe 15 years at that company. And some of the things that I found out about that company, even he didn't know. And so it was interesting how that really helped me, I think, as an applicant stand out. And so we uh, wanted to, to jump into, you know, maybe we could talk about fit, but we, I think there's still so much to cover about how we get through that process and what are some things that you can do to sharpen that resume, maybe some fields of study that you could explore as an applicant. And so one of the questions that I'd been meaning to ask you is, are you able to identify several things an interviewee needs to do prior to an interview? Absolutely. Uh, that's probably the most common question that I get asked by my students and even friends of my students and then other colleagues and whatnot. It's all about practice, 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 and practice. Okay, seriously, when you are getting ready to go into an interview, it's not so much that you talk to yourself in a mirror or practice with your friends or, or a loved one. It turns out that you should practice by actually drafting answers to perhaps seven to 10 very common interview questions. And the simplest Google search of, you know, common interview questions, you know, find something from a, you know, well-written source like Entrepreneur Magazine or, you know, some human resources website like the Society for Human Resource Management. They always have the top 10, the top 20, the top 50 questions that an interviewee is likely to be asked. And those are usually the generic ones. There's always going to be those questions, of course, that are specific to the job you're applying for. So if you're applying for a sales job, there's going to be, you know, sales-related questions. If you're applying for a technology-centric job, there's going to be questions related to, you know, areas of technology that you may be involved with, whether it's software engineering, project management, database management, whatever. 
but there's always those common questions. The most obvious and clear one is, tell me about yourself. If you take the time to write down maybe three or 400 words, not too much, but enough to where you actually can answer the question succinctly, cogently, and effectively. Don't make it sound like you're reading it, especially if you have an online interview like via Zoom or uh, you know, a telephonic interview. You want your answers to sound polished as if you are making them up, but you've already had the time to practice and prepare them. So again, about seven to 10 common interview questions such as, tell me about yourself. And then that question, by the way, you don't sit there and talk about your family and your pets and, you know, your favorite food and, you know, what movie you saw last week. Now, if, if an interview asks you questions such as that, they're actually probing to see what type of person you are. Clearly, be honest and answer the question. But there's certain things you don't, of course, want to volunteer. You don't necessarily need to volunteer that you're married or single. You don't need to volunteer any type of, you know, faith that you may practice. Oh, I go to church on Sundays. Well, that's wonderful. But but your interviewee or your interviewer does not need to know that. So certain questions like that, uh, you know, you would you would want to steer away from. But if you volunteer the answer to that or volunteer that information during an answer, then it becomes fair game. But again, practice those answers. Have them pre-prepared. And the nice thing is you can customize those answers for each particular job that you're getting ready to interview for, much like we talked about with your resume and your cover letter. Always customize them for that specific. So it almost appears like you are applying for that job and that job only. Well, when you're creating these answers, it's going to help you formulate your thoughts when you're not under any kind of stress. You'll be able to tighten those responses and again, tailor them for the specific position that you're interviewing for. And you can inject company specific information into those answers. So for example, if you are applying to a company that you know, builds widgets, you want to make sure that somewhere in your answers, you're talking about how you're going to enhance the value of the company and their ability to produce widgets because that's what you know they do and that's what you've figured out in your research. So again, that's going to make you sound not only very polished, but it's also going to make you sound like you know what you're talking about and that's the type of employee that most managers or interviewers want to have on their team. You'll go over these answers over and over, and again, you can save new versions every time. That way you can pull up previous ones for jobs that may be similar. And then here's a trick. If you do have a job interview via Zoom or perhaps telephonically, have that document open in an, either another window or in the background behind your camera so you're looking straight at your camera but yet you still have the ability to read and, and use your mouse perhaps to roll up and down uh, your answers so that you can refresh your recollection. Don't read those answers and make it sound like you're simply reading from a script, but use that to you know enhance your recollection and make sure that you cover you know the necessary points. You will look so much more polished than anybody else because you're so well prepared. You know, uh, Dr. Falco, you bring out an excellent point. Uh, at a previous show, I had talked about a book called 60 Seconds and You're Hired by Robin Ryan. And one of the things that uh, the author Ryan had, had talked about was to come up with a five-point agenda. So you, you take a look at the position that you're interviewing for, and you really think about the traits, the experiences, 
that the person who is th- that's interviewing for you know for uh, the interviewer, the person who is you know taking in and, and talking to the different interviewees, there's going to be a core set of traits that the successful applicant is going to have to be successful in that position. And so what Robin Ryan had talked about was identify what those core traits are that that interviewer is looking for, and then identify five of those that you as an applicant possess, and then come up with specific examples of how you have demonstrated that core characteristic in previous positions. And so then when those questions are asked of you, whether it be what's your greatest weakness or to your point, um, uh, tell me about yourself. Uh, and in fact, actually, the, uh, the book actually has a number of different questions that, uh, that, that are covered in, the, in 60 seconds and you're hired. Uh, tell me about your proudest accomplishment. You answer those questions in light of that five-point agenda. So at the end of the day, the interviewer, or sometimes there's a panel of them, they hear this a consistent theme throughout your answers, and it makes it easier for them to remember what those core characteristics are that you possess. Have you ever had a situation, Dr. Falco, where you've brought a person in for an interview, and they have just gone on and gone on, and it's, it's caused the interviewers to completely lose attention? or actually fear if this person was hired that they would talk their coworkers to death? <laughs> yes. And as a matter of fact, I usually coach my students when they're giving their interview responses. Again, this is one of the reasons why you prepare these responses ahead of time. The average person probably speaks about 120 words a minute, maybe at most. You want to obviously slow it down just a little bit. So you can kind of get a feel, time your answers when you're giving a response. Again, speak slowly, coherently, no uhs, and, uh, you know, long pauses. You want to be very fluid in your speech. Those type of answers, if they're, in essence, short, sweet, and to the point, maybe a minute and a half to two minutes, that's going to be about what the attention span of most interviewers and as far as that particular question. And if they want more, they'll ask you, oh, that's really great. Could you elaborate? Oh, of course. Then you can come back with another minute and a half or two minutes. I always recommend if it's a textbook kind of answer, like your greatest strength, your weakest weakness, things like that, that you prepare an answer that's what you're supposed to say, so to speak, but then also customize it so that it sounds unique to that particular interviewer's uh, question and that makes it sound like you've literally thought about it on the spot and that makes you look amazingly qualified in, in the eyes of an interviewer but definitely do not drone on and on and on uh, it's better to be provide less information but very clear and succinct in a say a two minute or even a two and a half minute response than it is to try to stuff everything into a five or six minute or seven minute response because remember you are excited about telling about yourself or, or giving an answer but the interviewee is going or the interviewer pardon me is going to get bored after a few minutes and they'll, they'll literally turn off and if that happens then the chances of you're you done. being the successful applicant is, yeah, you're done. 
I, I had a, a co-worker at one point. He was interviewing for position and had a uh, an individual whom he was qualified for the position and I think actually was a candidate to p- get the position. And now, the applicant did not know this, did not know how well he was doing, but the applicant uh, just went on and on and on and actually talked himself out of getting the job. And so he went on so long and talked about just extraneous things that this uh, this this coworker realized this is not someone that I could that I want a part of my team, and and in fact that brings out a really good point, and that is is that uh, interpersonal dynamics are so important in the environment, and you know on previous on previous shows we've talked about the role of you know identifying the importance of finding your north star, what's important to you. What do you feel passionate about? How do you, what type of contribution uh, do you want to leave or what contribution do you want to make? And then pursuing that, and then pursuing that with character and integrity, accountability and responsibility. Uh, So when we come here just shortly, we'll continue this conversation. This is Dr. Michael Falco and Stone James on The Success Doctor. achieve professional goals and objectives with tried and true approaches in the workplace. This is The Success Doctor on Radio 111. Now, here's Dr. Stone James. Welcome back to The Success Doctor. We have the good fortune of having Dr. Michael Falco, uh, author, professor, a municipal leader, uh, Naval Academy, uh, uh, post-Naval, uh, what's the name of the, uh, the the institution, Dr. Falco? Uh, the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School. The U.S. Naval Postgraduate School Academy. And so we're talking about interviews. We're talking about how to navigate those interviews. And we're talking about, well, not talking too much. And how uh, a, a recent experience of a, of a co-worker who was conducting an interview and the person literally talked himself out, unknowingly talked himself out of being offered the job because this person just didn't know when to stop. And so it, it, it brings me to this concept of fit. And I would imagine that Dr. Falco's got some ideas on the importance of fit in an organization and what a delicate balance managers have, whether mid-level managers or senior level managers, on trying to maintain the balance and the 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 health the emotional health of the organization and so when they look for people yes they're looking for those technical qualifications but i would imagine dr falco do you have an opinion on the role of 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 not only technical competency 
but the social emotional fit into the organization. You have any thoughts on that? Absolutely, Stone. It turns out that I, I usually tell my students it's about forty percent technical skill and capability, and, and ability to demonstrate that you have the capacity intellectually and potentially from a, a practical standpoint to accomplish the job. Most interviewers have already determined you are a likely fit in that regard by simply looking at your resume and cover letter. In other words, they've looked, they said this person possesses perhaps a degree in this area, they have experience in this area, they're probably going to do a good job given the tasks that they'll, uh, you know, be handed. Most of the interviews, at least 60%, is not to determine whether you are technically fit, but as you put it, are you socially, emotionally, and psychologically a fit for the organization? And that's why the interview itself is so important, because most of the time, what's going to separate the good candidate from the actual candidate who gets the job offer is going to be the one who creates the best rapport with the interviewer and is the one that appears to be the most at ease and the most comfortable and will fit in culturally with that organization. And I can tell you, during an interview itself, you as the applicant, keep in mind, you're in a way interviewing the organization. It's not just a one-way street, it's a two-way street. So as an interviewee, as a job candidate, you're finding out about the organization as the interviewer is asking questions. And perhaps you will get the opportunity, maybe toward the end, the interviewer might say, do you have any questions? You should always have, always have two questions ready to go specific for that job, that company, or that you know particular department or position. You want to demonstrate value, but you also want to demonstrate that you socially and psychologically and emotionally know and understand the organization. It means doing some research. Do you know anybody who works there already? Can they tell you about the company's organizational culture? If you don't know anybody, can you find out? Can you go look at blog sites? A lot of large entities have lots of blog sites, and employees talk about it all the time. Maybe you go to the you know people that you know who might work there, or you find out who works there, and you look them up on you know social media even. Uh, LinkedIn is a great example. People post about their company and what they do, and a lot of times that can be very, very beneficial to you as, a, as an interviewee. Because if you can demonstrate that you understand and you have this, the social intelligence, the emotional intelligence, and the psychological intelligence to fit in with that organization, you're a pick. Because remember, I need you to fit into that organization and fit into that team. Your competence, your, your, your intellectual competence, that'll come by default. If it doesn't, well, then we actually might even try to assist you. I have young applicants uh, entering in computer science uh, fields, for example. They don't really have a lot of programming experience. So they'll have older team members that have been there a while take them under their wing. But they don't want to take someone under their wing who isn't you know, going to fit into that organization. And so that usually is... The, the the deciding factor, uh, especially between really two, you know, two strong candidates, the person who, quote, appears to fit in is going to be that pick. You know, Dr. Falco, that's an excellent point uh, just about that fit and the fact that, you know, as senior leadership within an organization, it's a challenge running an organization in environments these days that really seem to be constantly changing 
there was an organization that uh, years ago they made a book called Who Moved My Cheese? Mandatory reading. It was a very simple book, but it was still a very important com- uh, concept. And one of the things that they talked about was the fact that, you know, before their industry used to have, it was like rafting down a, uh, a river. Sometimes it would be smooth, punctuated by rapids, and then it would be smooth again, smooth sailing. And it seems as as the environments and the different industries have changed, really they're in constant whitewater. They're constantly being hit. And so it's difficult enough to navigate a company through those times and then to layer on interpersonal conflicts. It's something you want to do everything possible to avoid. This is Stone James and Dr. Michael Falco. Look forward to continuing the conversation. The doctor is in. Putting your best foot forward on the job with Dr. Stone James on The Success Doctor. From Radio 111, here's Stone. This is Stone James and Dr. Michael Falco on The Success Doctor. Thank you for being a part of our discussion. So Dr. Falco, I think that you had some some thoughts on on responding to the interview, the interview process maybe even following up after the interview. Did you want to continue that discussion? Yes, absolutely, Stone. So one thing that I tell my students and and others who ask me, when you're in the interview itself, now whether the interview is being conducted in person, via Zoom, uh, anytime they can see you, at least in some fashion, always, always have a genuinely positive disposition. You shouldn't fidget. You shouldn't shift around a lot. You want to feel at ease. You want to feel confident. You want to sit toward the end of the seat, but not like you're going to fall off. You shouldn't slouch. You shouldn't, you know, put your, you know, hands all over the place. You want to be, you want to appear to be confident. You want to smile often and not be fake. And you want to have solid eye contact, but do not stare. Uh, you want to speak clearly and concisely, and you want to do everything in your power to eliminate as many ands and us that may creep into your speech. Better to slow down, maybe have a hand gesture, move your hand, than to, than to have that pause and say, uh, and, uh, those are interview killers, especially if there's a lot of them. Uh, the next one is you want to eliminate, and I see this a lot in the, in the younger generations, the word like. Somehow that word literally is in every portion of a sentence. I'll hear four, five, six words the same, like. Well, you know, like when I did this other thing here and like I went and like did this. None of those word likes needed to be in there. So if you can eliminate that, your speech will sound that much more polished and prepared. Um, As I mentioned earlier, you want to have those responses practiced so that you can inject them into a question. Even if a question is not exactly as what you prepared, you've already pre-thought and pre-prepared some answers that you can inject in there. And even if you have to, you know, ad lib a little bit. And then the last thing that I would mention, and this is something that uh, you can look up if you want to read about, it's called the art of veering, like you're veering away from something. 
When an interviewer asks a question that is something you either really don't want to answer or you'd like to kind of answer a slightly different version of it, or maybe you want to make it one of the answers that you've pre-prepared, you can use what is called the art of veering. What you do is you repeat the question as part of your answer, but you change it ever so slightly. So the interviewer asks a question, you know, so, so tell me about your prior, uh, you know, supervisor, what would he or she say about you? Well, in fact, your prior supervisor was really unhappy with you and that's why you left. So instead, you change the response ever so slightly by saying, actually, that's a really good question. You know, prior supervisors would have a lot of really great things to say about me. As a matter of fact, in one particular case, I, you know, accomplished ABCD and I, you know, was brought up as, you know, the employee of the month. Notice I didn't say my prior supervisor. I said prior supervisors. So I veered slightly away, but the interviewer, most of them, will not catch that. And they'll think, oh my gosh, he answered or she answered the question exactly what I wanted to hear. That's excellent. So what you're doing is you're slightly changing it just ever so subtly so that the answer that you provide is absolutely truthful, but it's not precisely. Now, if you get pinned down and the interviewer comes back, okay, but what I was talking about was your last supervisor, Mr. Jones, that you have listed on your, you know, your job application. Well, you know, then, you know, you're going to need to be prepared to provide at least some type of a, a truthful answer. And you want to couch it in, you know, in such a way that it, it obviously doesn't harm your, your, uh, your opportunity. But again, the art of veering can be very, very valuable. And I, and the last thing I'll mention is you, you cannot underestimate the value of having some questions ready because that shows that you've done your due diligence with respect to the company and the position and that you're actually genuinely interested. So you want the, the questions to really demonstrate some value. For example, you might, when the, when the question comes up, well, you know, thank you, you know, uh, Miss Smith or, or Sally, whatever, uh, is there any questions that you have for me? A lot of people will say, yeah, when are you going to make a decision? And, or, you know, how much money does this position pay? Or, you know, things like that. Never ask those type of questions. Those are very, very clear questions that will be addressed uh, when an offer is made. Instead, ask, well, I noticed that you're currently working on a X project. And that's very interesting to me because I have some experience in that regard. Can you tell me a little bit about that project if it's not, you know, classified? And the the response, the interview, well, I'd love to tell you about that, or, well, I can't tell you because it's classified. But most often, they're going to provide you some insight, and that's going to stick with that interviewer. Why? It's at the end of the interview. It's something they're going to remember, and you're going to, they're going to impress them with that type of a question because it shows so much interest. So, so essentially what you're saying is, is that you want to avoid the self-serving questions, like when are you going to make a decision, uh, how much you're going to pay, things of that nature, because really, are you going to work for, uh, are you going to work for $10 an hour, or are you going to work for the company? And I would imagine that the person that's interviewing you, they want someone who is going to work for the company to help the him or her achieve the company's goals or the company mission versus someone who's just going there to show up to receive $10 an hour. And I think that, that those are- That is absolutely correct. That is absolutely correct. We, we trade our time for money. That is inherent to just about every job unless it's a volunteer position. As a result of that, people really wanna know 
how much you know about the company, how well you're going to fit into the company. And again, just like you said, I couldn't say it any better, how well you help that company or that person or that team achieve the organizational mission and strategic objectives. If you can make yourself that valuable, you're going to get that job because that's what people want. And really, I think that's what, when they look at, when people move up within the organization, well, why? They're looking for that person who's going to, who's going to put the, the organization first, who's going to put the team first, who's going to check their ego at the door. And if there is a, uh, a challenging coworker, that the person, you can choose your response. You can choose to, you make the decision whether or not you're going to get into a verbal altercation with that, that difficult coworker, or if you're going to let it slide and you're going to act in the best interest of the company. And the longer that I've been in the workforce and the more positions that I've held, those are the people who rise to the top because really ultimately you're, you're choosing as a senior leader, you're choosing, you want the best people on your team. And so, and those, those best team members are going to be the ones that place the organizational goals before their desire to defend their ego against, you know, some foolish comment that a coworker made. And so, uh, yeah, very, very interesting. I would imagine that you have, you've seen that over your career, uh, quite a bit really is, is taking a look at that, uh, um, is is just taking a look at the best interest of the, uh, the organization. So, Dr. Falco, I think that you have got a pretty strong opinion on science and technology, engineering, and math. Do you want to share that with with us? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, my initial background was computer science. Uh, my undergraduate and graduate degrees in computer science and, and minor in math. So, for me, it's been inherent to my DNA. Uh, and I can tell you that just about any position you go into, you need to have some level of technical capabilities, whether it's a, a level of proficiency with Microsoft Word, Microsoft Excel, Microsoft PowerPoint. Those are the kind of tools that now it's almost expected everybody can utilize in the workplace. And when I say utilize, I mean they don't just know how to turn it on and, and type some things or add some numbers in a, in a column or row. Turns out you actually need to be able to apply those tools and solve organizational needs or, or problems. So it's important that you have some level of technical skill. Now I can tell you, and I don't want to scare you know anybody, but the reality is automation is here, and automation is growing, and automation is going to eliminate jobs as we go forward, and it will change jobs as we go forward. There's a kind of a monumental uh, report that was done back in 2013 by uh, Carl Frey and Michael Osborne called The Future of Employment and How Susceptible Are Jobs to Computerization. And it literally looked at every single occupation, 702 different occupations using their occupational code, and it's linked them on how likely they are to be automated, i.e. remove humans or reduce humans that were doing those jobs. And it turns out areas like transportation is the most significant. Why? Because we are heading toward autonomous vehicles. And as a result, pizza delivery is not necessarily going to need drivers anymore. Uh, you go into some fast food restaurants, there's not even people taking your order anymore. You enter what you want in, in, at the kiosk 
or you can even do it on your mobile app but before you even get there and you simply walk in and pick up your food or they'll bring it out to your car so uh, cooks for, for, are, are no, no longer humans. We have robots. Uh, Flippy, I believe, is the name of a robot at Dodger Stadium that makes the hamburgers. Doesn't get sick, doesn't get injured, doesn't ask for a raise, and it never, never gets tired. So there are definite areas where people need to consider learning areas of, of automation. Uh, the most uh, obvious would be some form of computer skills and technical skills. I'm not saying that everybody has to be a software engineer uh, or a computer scientist, but obviously there's areas that will be and very likely be the most or highest paying. Uh, um, I told you in a prior uh, show that my background is kind of very diverse. I teach uh, both engineering and computer science, and I also teach humanities and social science, I teach public policy and uh, criminal justice. So when I talk to my computer science students, their their expectation is they're going to graduate with an undergraduate degree and make seventy five or eighty thousand dollars a year. That's very common. Uh, my graduate students will graduate with their master's degree in computer science and they'll command easily a hundred to one hundred and eighty, depending upon the type of uh, position. And I'm not talking about just going to work at Google or Facebook or Apple or anything like that. I'm talking about you know very realistic uh, software engineering type jobs. But not everybody's cut out for that. But that but there are so many positions that I even tell people who are majoring in business, you should think about a minor in computer science or computer information systems. They're majoring in psychology. I said, yeah, you should minor in computer information systems. Why? Because everything you do going forward is going to have some level of technology associated with it. And the more capable you are with technology as a tool, the more likely you are to get that job in that field. And that, and that really seems like that is true on all levels of the age spectrum, whether you are just entering the workforce or you've been in it 20 or 30 years. You know, these to learn a new program to learn Word, become ex- exceptional in Word or Excel. If you make a mistake, the computer doesn't catch on fire or, you, 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 you know, the house doesn't sink. You just close the file and reopen it. And so really, I, I think that you have that ability to, to develop that skill set, even if you have no background in it, it's, it's not as scary as you think once you start dabbling in it. So this is, Stone, is Stone James and Dr. Michael Falco on The Success Doctor, and we look forward to continuing the conversation. This is The Success Doctor on Radio 111, helping students and professionals at all stages along the journey to success. Now, here's Dr. Stone James. This is Stone James and Dr. Michael Falco on The Success Doctor. Appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to join us. We're having a, what I think is a very interesting discussion on how to interview, how to get through the hiring process, how to make contributions to an organization, how to ensure that you're acting with integrity and character, accountability and responsibility. Uh, We've got some pretty exciting uh, events going on within 
uh, our cathedral city. Uh, we've got a hiring event coming up for a new Amazon commercial hub that's going in on Daypalm Drive. There's going to be 152 different positions that Amazon is going to be interviewing for. It's going to be a different different types of positions doing different types of work, of course, different compensation levels. Pretty exciting thing, though, is just that all of the positions are going to offer medical benefits. They'll have 401k. And what I think really is compelling and steep, steep, speaks deeply to me is the fact that there's going to be 95% tuition reimbursement. So how thankful are we to have Dr. Michael Falco, who has is is not only a uh, municipal leader, senior leadership, senior senior leadership at a major Southern California city, almost a seven or eight hundred million dollar a year annual budget, uh, but also a professor. So, Dr. Falco, I think that you've had some experience with community colleges, and and often people overlook the value that a community college can bring to their career. Do you want to share any thoughts with the with us? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Stone. It turns out that, that community college is not just for your, you know, high school graduates or, you know, college uh, students who are looking to get a few extra classes. It turns out that community colleges offer a vast array of vocational courses where you wouldn't necessarily achieve college credit toward perhaps a degree, but more so you have the ability to take classes at a very, very inexpensive rate. For example, you can take a class on Microsoft Excel or Microsoft Word or even PowerPoint or the whole entire suite for as little as $150. And many of them are done online. And that allows people to do it at, the, you know, at their own pace uh, as long as they keep up with you know, the actual uh, instructor's requirements. But the benefit is very inexpensive. And you literally can put that on a resume that I took a class at XYZ Community College in Microsoft Office or in introductory programming or just about anything you want, uh, I highly recommend that people uh, beyond just college students take advantage of the the very powerful uh, California Community College system. Uh, It is actually quite remarkable when you really get into uh, its value. People think, oh, high school, go right into a four-year university. Well, sadly, four-year universities are incredibly expensive. Even the state schools, uh, the CSU, largest community, the largest uh, university system in the in the nation, uh, is is very very expensive in comparison to a community college, uh, where you can literally take classes for about one hundred and fifty dollars a piece. So that's something that people should definitely look at if they're interested in career advancement perhaps a new career, completely new career. I've had students come to me from, I have a student right now, as a matter of fact, a graduate student in computer science who has his undergraduate degree in foreign language. He studied Japanese. And he literally realized, yeah, I can be an interpreter, but I'm going to make a lot more money if I go and become a computer scientist. Well, he already had an undergraduate degree. Can't really go back and get another undergraduate degree. So to get a graduate degree in computer science, he had to go back and take all of those lower division prerequisite courses. He spent about a year and a half at a community college, and he took every single one of them, and then took a few upper division uh, electives uh, as a as a, a post baccalaureate student, and now he's he's a stellar graduate student. So it's very very possible, and he's uh, by the way 33 years old, so he's not a youngster like right out of high school. 
Uh, the benefit, again, those community colleges offer, you know, amazing coursework uh, that people can take, again, both collegiate level and vocational. Uh, so it's great for all ages. So that's something really overlooked. So really, that's something that also shows the discipline and determination uh, and then also shows the, your, the interest in that given field and then the growing expertise. And so, you know, one of the things, too, that I think is, has been interesting, certainly the undergraduate, with, the, with some exceptions, I think, you know, when you study to become a teacher, you learn how to, to you know, the basics of teaching or engineering uh, or maybe accounting. But it seems like many of the undergraduate degrees are really about teaching you how to learn. And so uh, that's been really interesting is is that when you go to that school, I kind of look at it, it's very similar to working out. You go to work out, you go to build those muscles, grow those muscles, strengthen them. Same thing with academics or reading or studying. You're growing that mental muscle. And so I hope that uh, our discussions uh, have helped grow your mental muscle, has helped reinforce some of the things that were probably in the back of your mind for years, hopefully are motivating you to go take that step, identify your North Star, go for it, act with integrity, act with character, and make those dreams a reality by taking steps towards it. Dr. Falco, thank you so much for being a part of our discussion, and I look forward to having you on future shows. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Stone. So this is Stone James, the success doctor. Appreciate your time and joining us on this discussion. I hope to see you at, hear you at the next success doctor.